This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Maggie. My name is Brian. And today we have a very special guest with us today. Her name is Ming Zhao, and she is the co-founder and CEO of Proven Skincare. Ming, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about yourself to our general audience? Yeah, happy to. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Brian. I'm Ming. I am currently the co-founder and CEO of Proven Skincare. At Proven, we create personalized skincare products that are based on more than 47 factors about you, including your gene expression, your environment, your lifestyle, and your skin concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself, I am an immigrant. Uh, I moved to the States from China at the age of 12, not speaking a word of English. I am also a third generation entrepreneur. Uh, both my father and my grandfather were entrepreneurs in China um, uh, prior to me founding Proven uh, in the States. And I'm also a mother to a um, two and a half year old. Uh, so my company, Proven, and my daughter are actually the same age. That's amazing. Wow. wow. Well, it's it's pretty pretty amazing to hear that you know you did come from a family of entrepreneurs. And how how was that experience like? How did that shape and influence you and make like help you become the person that you are today? Yeah, you know, I think um, the most, um, I think the most uh, obvious thing is that it made um, most people in my family pretty fearless. You know, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. He himself actually, um, when he was 19 years old, escaped a famine. So there was a famine where he was from in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. His family were farmers. He was the oldest uh, child in the family. He had uh, six younger siblings and they were, you know, in danger of starving to death, like actually starving to death. Mm -hmm. So he um, walked uh, like 1900 kilometers from where he was to a big city in the northern part of China. Mm -hmm. You know, he, you know, baked himself a bunch of bread, carried the bread, worked along, you know, along his way. Um, and um, in the new city, he opened up a bakery, um, more of a bakery cart, making the kind of bread that they, you know, that they eat in his own hometown. Right. And that's how he actually supported his entire family uh, and kept his you know, entire family from starving mm-hmm. uh, and sent all his money uh, back home. And eventually he helped his own family moved to the new city as well. So I think with that experience, you know, my father, um, he, my father was actually among the first generation of entrepreneurs when China first allowed entrepreneurship 
in the 1980s. So when Deng Xiaoping like opened up the economy, uh, you know, so weird. Prior to that, you know, during um, during the time of you know of, of Mao, it's so weird to think that entrepreneurship wasn't allowed, but it actually wasn't allowed. That's what you know true communism was. That it you know none of this um, none of this elements of ingenuity was allowed. So as soon as Deng Xiaoping opened up the economy, my father became the, among the first wave of entrepreneurs to open his own company, which at that time, you know, people really loved their iron rice bowls, which were basically um, guaranteed work and pension for life. So people, you know, once they had these great jobs, they didn't want to leave because it was guaranteed by the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but my father wasn't afraid to leave that kind of situation for something that uh, you know, that he really believed in, mm -hmm. uh, even though there were a lot of voices around him that said, you know, why would you do this? Why would you do that? You know, things don't change that much. You know, the, the type of pressure that people feel now, um, they might have felt then or maybe even more so. Um, so he was not he was not afraid. He um, you know, was very determined. And um, and yeah, so uh, and when I was 12 years old, he actually expanded that operation to the States. And that's what allowed us all to move to the, to, to the U.S. Um, at the age of 12, actually, to Florida, which is also a pretty random place for, you know, a Chinese family uh, mm -hmm. to move to South Florida. Yeah. Well, wow, that's, that's an amazing story, too. And to hear that, you know, you came from such an awesome line of entrepreneurship. And that's exactly what we're trying to capture on the Asian Hustle Network, network you know. It's a, a lot of us are... We want to be entrepreneurs. We are entrepreneurs. We're trying to be successful. And to hear that, you know, you come from a family that, that has not walked the, the traditional path of becoming like a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, yeah. you know, it's really inspiring for us to hear that, like your dad went, went for something that he really believed in, you know? Yeah. And it absolutely. feels like he taught you these values too that, you know, entrepreneurship is the way to go. We love it. We love it so much. Yeah. And I love that because I feel like it's still relevant today. You know, mm -hmm. you talking about your grandfather going through the entrepreneurial route and a lot of people in his generation wouldn't do the same because they were promised security. Right. And that's very relevant today, too. You know, I think a lot of people are scared to go through entrepreneurship because they want that security and they mm -hmm. want a secure job. But it's yeah, really yeah. believing in, you know, your business and believing that you can do it and breaking out of that mold and breaking it out of that, out of that shell. It's really going to drive you forward, which, you know, obviously your grandfather was able to do. And yeah, I think the most secure thing is to believe in yourself and I, your capability. You know, there's no there's nothing in the world that promises security. You know, the uh, the, the government in China did promise, you know, uh, lifetime employment. And then, you know, things happen and then all of a sudden it wasn't lifetime. So, and, you know, now there are companies too, you know, that people might work for a very, um, um, a very stable big company, but then, you know, things change, you know, things change in such unexpected ways. Like we're seeing with COVID, mm -hmm. nothing is Guaranteed. promised. The only thing that you could trust is your own abilities, your own efforts and um, belief that you can do what is necessary um you know we, we we now live in a society where you know thankfully nobody is going in very few people are mm -hmm. actually in fear of not being able to feed themselves right like that was a real concern that my grandfather went through so you know with the um with this great situation that we're in i think it's 
even more so that we shouldn't be afraid to, you know, to do something a little more daring because you might really surprise yourself. Yeah, 100% agree with that statement too. And what type of values and lessons did your grandpa and your dad teach you growing up? You know, yeah. you're such a confident, strong person. And we want to learn a lot more about like how you <laughs> became you. the person you are today. And just, yeah, my yeah, grandpa more. actually um, died when I was pretty young. So, but the, what I do remember about him was that he was always, um, he was always very um, smiley. He was always smiling. <laughs> he was always very gentle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he always um, believed in the the good of people. Um, in fact, he uh, he you know made some money with that little uh, bakery cart that the entire family participated in. You know, some people, um, some some of my um, aunts and uncles, you know, milled wheat. Others, you know, uh, the, the entire process. Um, so he made a little bit of money and then actually lost it because he you know tried to invest in other entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, make their own dreams, but not all of that succeeded. But nevertheless, he never really you know complained about that. He was always just very grateful for the life that he had, yeah. for the family that he had around him. Even though you know he's experienced poverty, he's experienced some affluence, you know, for that time, and then he experienced somewhere in between. He was just um, in general, all of those situations didn't affect him that much. It was just the fact that he had you know, his children and eventually his grandchildren, they were all around him, they spent time with him. And I just remember him being very happy, even though, you know, from a material perspective, later on, he didn't have that much. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a really important characteristic. And I think that's why, you know, your grandfather, your father and yourself are so successful, because those values were handed down to you. You know, and it really takes, you know, someone to push through and fight through that adversity and the struggles and challenges in order to succeed. You know, a lot of people feel like the, the slightest, you know, challenge that they go through, they often, you know, feel like they've already failed and don't push through. It's all about mindset, yeah. being optimistic, you know. Yeah, it's so difficult. It's so difficult, you know, because the thing it was mindset, unfortunately, is you can't train for it in a vacuum. You know, you can't just... Right. Um, you, you can't try to train for it like you're in a gym. You really have to be in a real situation mm-hmm. where you need to have, uh, you know, strength and mental strength and resilience to, to build it. So it's right. probably some of the most painful lessons one mm-hmm. has to learn. Um, and for me, you know, I definitely try to, um, you know, try to keep that in mind. Like for me, um, starting the company, um, you know, having gone through so many ups and downs is really, it's, at times, very easy to feel like, oh, you know, when is this going to, you know, you know, have any results? When is this going to, um, you know, feel like it's worthwhile? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I feel like, um, you know, thinking about what made my grandfather happy, it makes so much sense. Because for me, you know, my, as I mentioned, my daughter is the same age as my company. So when I was starting my company, people were like, you know, that's a really bad idea to, you know, when you're pregnant to start a startup at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people from a good intention, from really good intentions, you know, my friends and mentors at our startup were like, you know, you should really maybe just put something on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just, we just, you know, both my co-founder and I, in fact, um, yeah. my co-founder, Amy is a computational physicist from Stanford. She was also pregnant at the same time as we started our wow. company. It was just, you know, <laughs> That's crazy. That's bad timing or weird <laughs> timing, whatever it is. And um, everybody just thought that we were just crazy, you know, two pregnant oh. women starting, 
a venture backed company and, you know, and having a lot of ambition, you know, we weren't just trying to start like a little sort of, you know, mom and pop thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we pushed through it. And I would have to say that having my daughter is like a secret sauce for me. It's like a secret uh, weapon. Because even when it feels bleak, and it often does, you know, I think if there are more bleak days, especially in the early days, then there are days of hope. Um, and even when it feels very tedious, and there are many tedious days as well. Um, most days, you're just, you know, crunching through things, checking boxes and just doing things, which could be very tedious. Right. Even during those days, um, having my daughter next to me, you know, who was just happy and joyous and smiling. And even when I'm having a bad day or somebody, or somebody doesn't believe in me or, you know, people question me, my capabilities, my company, um, there's somebody there who always loves me and trusts me and thinks that I'm the best thing in the world. You know, having mm-hmm. that kind of support yeah. is so absolutely necessary. So I actually have the credit being able to continue mm-hmm. and to get to where we're at because, you know, we have these, you know, little supporters behind us. So yeah. that we did not expect going into this. Yeah, that makes one heck of a difference, you know, just knowing that you have someone depending on you. Yeah. Just through the darker days and entrepreneurship is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. there's so many down days, so many days that you question yourself and you look yourself in the mirror and be like, I could have had an easier life, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but- and there are many doubters, you know, like people, like, you know, what, whether it's investors or, you know, mentors yeah. or, you know, people right. talk to you about competitors or, you know, whatever. There's just so many, there are many more haters along the way than people yeah. who, um, you know, people who support you. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that's just the normal course of action. You know, you hear yeah. any of those successful companies, right? Even like you know, like the 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 Netflix of the world, like people didn't believe them in the beginning either, right? So it's like everybody eventually um, who succeeds was at some point an underdog. And I think for yeah. everyone out there, you know, you just have to believe in that and to, to know that, to not think that you're an exception because people don't believe in you. That's the norm. People mm-hmm. won't believe in you until they can't not believe in you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's entrepreneurship 101. And the fact that you do have haters means you're doing something right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. If no one hates on you, you're like, wait, am I doing <laughs> yeah. this right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that you look to your daughter for inspiration. And you know for a fact that your daughter will never be a hater. So I think a lot of people find that their, their children are their purpose and their why. And I love that, you know. It's, it's really like our shining light in our life. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. We do want to trace it back a bit too. Like right before you started Proven, like what were yeah. you doing? Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration for Proven as you're working your professional career? And, you know, have yeah. it's been in the back of your mind for a while? And is, is this your first company, your second company, your third? Yeah. So for me, um, you know, I, even though my I had this entrepreneurial lineage, I guess, I didn't think that I was necessarily going to be an entrepreneur because, you know, we had immigrated to the States. Um, there's, you know, the States is full of, you know, great, uh, secure, interesting, well-paying jobs. So um, my initial plan was to, you know, take one of those um, and, um, you know, have a great, um, have, a, have a great, I guess, relaxing lifestyle. So the first job I took out of college was I was a management consultant at BCG because I knew I wanted to be in business, but I didn't know exactly, you know, what in the general sort of 
concept of business I wanted to do. And people had told me that, um, uh, that um, management consulting, you can get a great foundation. So that's what I did. Um, it was interesting. It, was, it really gave me, uh, I think, a good you know, strategic and operational understanding of this general concept of business. Um, but I knew that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And at the time, I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, it's possibly because, you know, as a consultant, you're kind of an agency, you know, you're not right. a person who is actually operating. You're not a person making decisions. You're like an advisor, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, there was always just a little bit of, you know, like um, a little bit of urge to try to do more, but, you know, mm-hmm. of course you, you know, there's, there's a limit to how much you could do. Right. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, um, a, um, a friend who, um, was at BCG before, went out to um, work at Bank Capital in private equity. And mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, sounded really interesting. So I, um, um, you know, he told me more about it. And um, I then joined Bank Capital uh, in private equity investing. So I started in the Boston office, which is the headquarters. And then since I'm fluent in Mandarin still, um, moved to the Hong Kong office which was just starting at the time. So it does this 2008, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, it's really crazy to think of that, that private equity as an industry right. didn't really quite, you know, exist much in Asia and look at, you know, where it is now, just, you know, 10, 12 years later, you can't even think of a, you know, a, a time when it didn't exist. You know, that just shows you how fast the world changes and adapts to things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, those two years was also a very um, intense training for um, understanding business intuition, for understanding, you know, what makes a, a business a great business because, you know, bank capital and other um, I guess top private equity companies like that, what they do is they try to um, find the top one, two, or three, depending on the size of the market, players in a particular market. Mm-hmm. Um, they you know they add more um, money into it. They help with some operational expertise, um, best practices, and try to make those players even more valuable. Right. So the first step is to find these top players and then understand what makes them top players. Mm-hmm. So that kind of training and learning from these, um, you know, experts in, yeah, experts in business um, was really um, valuable. Um, at the same time, these kind of roles, you know, in um, finance really are very intense. They really take a toll on you. So for me, I was working, you know, um, 12, 14 hour days consistently and Hong Kong wasn't my home. You know, I was far away from my friends and my family. Mm-hmm. So I remember waking up one day and feeling like I was really aging much faster than I would have liked. You know, I was, I was in my 20s, but looking much older. You know, it's kind of like it reminds me of, you know, when... Um, Obama first became president and what he looked like and then you know you see photos of after and you see the before and after and it's really quite stark mm-hmm. um, that's what that's what I felt like so um, at that time you know I started buying all kinds of expensive skincare products to try to you know regain my youth mm-hmm. and I felt like you know they all promised miracles but I really didn't do anything it was uh, it felt like a conspiracy it felt like you know I was a chump that <laughs> Along with my other good, you know, girlfriends, we yeah. all felt like we were just betrayed repeatedly by these big brands who are making um, beautifully packaged, expensive products 
that didn't end up doing anything. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that sort of planted a seed in my head, this, you know, this sort of um, this frustration um, with this industry. And then um, I, um, after leaving uh, bank capital and private equity, I went on a little bit of a sort of self recovery, like a um, eat, pray, love kind of journey for a couple of months. And um, after searching for a while, I actually came upon a specialist who created personalized skincare products based on first understanding your skin, understanding your life, and then you know putting exactly what's needed into a few bottles. And I feel like using those personalized products were the first time that I saw a difference with my skin. So um, I was like, you know, this makes so much sense because for every, um, for all the care in our body, you know, in our organs, um, it's all tailored to exactly what you need and what that organ needs. Our skin is our body's largest organ. Why do we do such a, you know, one size fits all generic a marketing focused approach to it. It really makes no sense. It's quite antiquated. And in fact, you know, the skincare industry hadn't had any innovation for about 60 years, which is just crazy for how big and fast growing mm-hmm. and important of an industry it is to its customers. You know, it's people consider it essential, you know. Um, so, um, so for me, the epiphany really was taking a personalized approach to skincare. And then later on, I was introduced to my co-founder, Amy, who um, she, so she, Amy is a computational physicist from Stanford. Mm-hmm. She um, was introduced to me by my then boyfriend, now husband, who was like, oh, you know, this is a tremendous technologist. Um, she also has entrepreneurial aspirations. Maybe you guys will hit it up. Um, and lo and behold, you know, we became friends. We really, you know, liked each other, our sort of backgrounds had a good melding, you know, for me with a business background, for her with a deep technology background. Right. And, um, you know, Amy is also no sort of regular scientist, you know, data scientist. She actually, when she was getting her PhD, she broke the world record for the largest computational simulation on a supercomputer in the world. Wow. So she was kind of like, you know, a super, com- like, like, like a quantum computer before there was quantum computing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, lo and behold, she also had her own skincare issues that she, um, uh, found her own way of addressing. So she had a, um, skin condition called, um, atopic dermatitis, uh, which, you know, she's had for a long time, which is very, um, uh, very irksome. And the products on the market really weren't helping her that much. Uh, and for her, she used her data science background to build a large database that found all the scientific studies from research mm-hmm. articles, um, as well as all the consumer testimonials from use, people using different products to try to solve this issue. And then she ran machine learning algorithms through this database to then understand how different individual ingredients affect different people. And that's how she found a solution for her skin. So for us, when we started Proven, we basically combined our mutual epiphanies of personalization mm-hmm. and using data to know how to personalize mm-hmm. to create Proven. So that's, that's how Proven first got started. 
That is amazing. And I 100% agree, like being a female and trying to find skincare that's perfect for myself. Like I totally agree with you that like big beauty products tend to not work on anyone. And it's super, super hard to find the product that works just for you because, you know, everyone's skincare or skin type is different. Right. And I feel like I often find myself, you know, looking for skincare products that work for me. And they always say, oh, this is good for dry skin or this is good for oily skin, but it never works out quite that way. And I love that personalization phase to it. I think that's, that's really important. I think you said, you mentioned there are like 47 different types of factors that go into, right. right. And I know you Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, like weather has a lot to do with it or the pollution in your city. And so I love that you're taking, you know, those type of factors and really being a game changer in that industry because there's so many players in that industry and for you to kind of differentiate yourself from that market and really, you know, hone into what the customer needs is it's super important. Yeah. And I'll admit it to you. I, I can't, <laughs> you know, it's, I know you guys talking about like skincare stuff. Most guys won't talk about it. Uh, I admit it's pretty hard to find stuff for my skin too because I feel like I'm allergic to, to like 90% of the things out there. <laughs> so thank you for creating this product. You do want to emphasize some point in your story as well. I mean, the power connection too, you know, yeah. it's just, you never know who you're going to meet. I feel like you're going to spot out opportunities with the right mindset, knowing that you want to do something. It's crazy how the world, how that happens in the world, right? When you want to do something, yeah. when you start, start telling people about it people start making the connection for you because Absolutely. it's just a, like a subconscious human thing. It's like, Oh wow. Ming, you want to do this? Wait, I know so-and-so that wants to do something similar. Maybe you guys work together, you know? So exactly. part of that story is like, be open to your ideas. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much fear that someone's going to steal your idea and do it so much better than you. That, that whole part is to me is not something that you should be concerned about because when you create a company, your personality, your mindset, your heart and soul is imprinted in this company. And that part cannot be duplicated. You know, there's so much stigma that we see in Asian Hustle Network. For before, when you first started the group, people were posting business ideas and people will comment underneath there and be like, why are you sharing your business idea? People are going to steal it. And to me, that's the most ridiculous thing ever. You know, you should be sharing your ideas so it gets refined because no one can copy who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's really like you know, ninety nine point nine percent hustle, and the idea is just you know a tiny little thing in it. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. Right, right, and and I think it goes back to kind of like the Asian culture, right? A lot of Asian people don't like to share their business ideas because they're scared that people might steal it, right? But the truth of the matter is that no one can really do it like how you do it. You Mm -hmm. have your own style. Right. And I feel like a lot of people in the Asian culture, at least, like they, they, they like to keep to themselves mm-hmm. and they feel mm-hmm. that if they succeed, they can't have their peers succeed and vice versa. But we always talk about an age and we, yeah. that's not true at all. You know, yeah. we can and, all succeed. And we like the fact that you're so public about your company and yeah. who you are. You know, you are essentially the brand of the company. And this mentality that we, we talk to, it's so necessary for the Asian community. You know, we need, right. when you look around for heroes that we need to look up to in different industries, like we, we don't find much Asian entrepreneurs in the public about what they do. Right. Hmm. And we found this a lot as we're doing the, the Asian Hustle Network podcast. The most of the founders who founded companies like early on, 
tend to be in the back, right? They, mm. They're just like, hey, look, I don't want people to know I have this company right. because there's something, there's something negative about being looked up to, being like, like jealous and all these problems that come with that. And we talk to them. And the biggest thing that they always tell us is they wish they were more public with their company in the past. Right. Mm. So like, and, and they were so into the Asian belief that they never built their personal brand. Yeah. So companies that we see all around us are actually, some of them are founded by Asian founders that we never mm. knew. Yeah. You know, and we love you talking here because you essentially do represent the newer generation of Asian entrepreneurs. It's, it's, it's essentially asking, why not us? You know, why not me? Yeah. Why can't I be public? Yeah. You know, and especially as a female founder and like female fun minority founder as well. Like you're super inspirational to hear like that you are pushing for this. And we do want to hear more about your experience starting up too. Because we know like there's a lot of microaggressions out there in the business world that, you know, you do feel sometimes like you are being pushed back a lot just because of your color of your skin, you know, your race, your the way you look. It's it's all relevant. We do want yeah. to hear more about that experience too, so we can help pivot your story to to motivate a newer generation to just push through and, and know, kind of know what to expect too. Yeah, and let, yeah. I'd like to add on top of that, you know, I we really appreciate you being on the forefront of the brand and on top of Brian's questions about the, you know, microaggressions or anything that you faced while being an entrepreneur, even on top of that, on top of being a member of a minority, what about being a woman as well, you know? you know, being a member of minority and a woman, those are two very, very important topics. We'd love to hear your, your insight on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, to your earlier point about whether it's, you know, the modesty uh, that is social ingrained in our culture or that fear that, you know, uh, once I give my, you know, one great idea out that somebody's going to steal it and, um, and um, you know, do their own thing with it. I think that all comes down to a little bit of um, self-consciousness of, you know, not believing in oneself enough because, um, you know, if you really did believe in your, your capabilities and how great your idea is together, then you will know that only you can make this thing that you so believe so much into reality. You know, it's not knowing the knowledge is really feeling it and feeling passionate about it. So I think, um, I think we all could do more to just feel more confident in general that, you know, we can achieve what we believe ardently, um, regardless of what people say. And I think that's also a, another, another piece to this, you know, as I mentioned, my co-founder Amy is a award-winning cosmetic, I mean, sorry, is a, um, a, yeah, a, you know, record-breaking data scientist. You know, she has led data science teams at, you know, fortune 10 companies and, other leading data, you know, startup that have raised, you know, um, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And yet when we were starting this company together, you know, people would look at us, you know, venture capitalists, other people would look at us like we're just two girls starting like a small, um, you know, small cosmetic brand. And we would tell them that there's, you know, a lot of technology and data science and AI mm -hmm. infused to what we're doing. It's not just a small skincare idea. And they would just not believe it, despite, you know, how revered Amy is. You know, it's hard to find somebody who's more sort of technologically data, you know, savvy than she is. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if somebody like her 
um, gets you know brushed aside when it comes to technology, then who is not brushed aside? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just speaks to the industry in general, where I don't know if we are we were dismissed because we were females, or because you know people know that we're like new mothers, mm-hmm. or that we're Asian. Who knows what it is? You know, it's something, or maybe even if you know. Somebody else had this idea. Maybe it's just about the idea. Maybe they, you know, anybody else with the idea, they would have still thought it was, you know, um, far-fetched to bring data science and personalization into skincare. Who knows? But regardless, you know, I'm not going to sit there and try to dissect why they don't like me. I'm just going to move on to the next person. Mm -hmm. And eventually I'll find somebody who understands what we're doing, who um, can see the future, you know, who have, um, once, you know, once we share a vision with them, who can see um, that this could become reality right and that's eventually what we did you know um, we yeah there's been many um, situations where we felt like yeah we felt like we were dismissed you know even with other sort of supposed champions of female founders that you know um, not all you know not all female VCs Right. Uh-huh. like to invest in female founders either. So you think sometimes that you found somebody who, oh, you know, see eye to eye, you know that this is a great industry, you know that this yeah. is a need, I'm sure you've had this need, and even then, you know, and that could be even more crush- more crushing because you right. feel like these people um, should have been there for you. But it's the same thing, you know, they don't believe in you, find somebody else that does. And if you have enough conversations first of all and also enough conviction of what you're doing and you just continue to build and build and build so you have more to show for eventually people will believe in you and that's what's allowed us to you know get to where we are today and to continue um i I don't think it stopped you know i think even um you know once you get to even a more sort of you know illustrious state like for us you know we've been on shark tank we've been on the today show um, we feel pretty good about our progress. There's still so much more to go. You know, we are still at the very beginnings of our journey, but we still feel like, you know, we are getting initial recognition for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's still, you know, just a lot of um, people who still don't believe or don't, you know, whatever. But eventually, you know, you just learn to disregard the people who don't matter, um, right. believe in yourself, and keep going, keep doing the things that that's necessary to make the vision into reality. Yeah, Yeah, 100% agree with that one too. And what you mentioned in that statement is the abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, most people stop after the first no. And that's (laughs) that's a big (laughs) no-no. You don't do something like that. You know, you you have to keep, like you said before, you have to keep believing in yourself and your Mm -hmm. vision. And you know, like, what you're doing will change the world. No one can believe in that vision except for you. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep, you're right. You have to keep on having conversations with people, you know? Yep. If people don't believe in you or don't so-and-so, don't dwell on it. You know, yeah. don't sit there and feel yeah. sorry for yourself. <laughs> That's Absolutely. not the case in the business world at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. all, and most yeah. of the time, all you need is one. Absolutely. You know? All you need and, is you one. Know, it goes together, you know, not being afraid to share your, your ideas in the first place. And then once you hear a couple of no's that are like, oh, this is ridiculous, still do not let that, you know, make yeah. you shy from sharing your idea. Right. For right. us, you know, the idea evolved quite a bit from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only evolved because we talked to more and more people. Um, you know, they added in their input as to what would make sense. 
And that evolved, eventually evolved into a narrative of a business that made a lot of sense. And I think most ideas are like that, where, you know, beginning, you have some spark of genius in it, mm-hmm. but not all of it is, you know, fully baked. And the only way to get it to a state where, um, you know, it's, it's a full-fledged business idea is, you know, one, putting it in front of real people and have people try, or, mm-hmm. and or, you know, continue to talk to people, experts in the industry, Right. To, to, to get input, to, you know, really listen to what is needed in the market. But as you do that, you will hear a lot of, you know, naysaying as well. And that's why they haven't done anything. That, that's why they haven't started this idea because, you know, they, they, they don't have the yeah. same vision you do. So don't let that stop you either. Yeah, right? I and, absolutely agree with that statement too. And just reminds me of how when we started Asian Hustle Network, some people did tell us it was a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> like, why are you guys creating this group for? What's the point of it? Like, like we already interact with each other, you know? Well, yeah. We kind of believe that we want a safe space for us to listen to your story, mm-hmm. you know, and part of entrepreneurs. But even so, some people thought that was a bad idea. <laughs> you, know? yeah. um, you just think, have to believe in your vision. Yeah. I mean, now that our group has grown to over 55,000 members, we're bound to get people who are never pleased with the way we do things, right? Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the same mentality, right? I think uh, we're always going to have haters, like we mentioned at the beginning of the it's podcast. A good thing. It is a good <laughs> thing. But I think that also drives us forward in doing the things that we love. Right. And it's really about the mentality to break through that. So, yeah, love that. Absolutely. Um, and look at what you guys have built. I mean, people are such fervent fans of the group. You know, it's right. really hard to find a group where the engagement and the excitement is so high and people support each other so much. So, you know, you really have to feel very proud of yourself. And imagine, you know, had you listened to the haters and the no, you know, and the naysayers, it, this group would not exist. So, mm-hmm. and what a you know, sad loss that would have been in the world so yeah definitely thank you for that yeah thank you um i would love to know you know just to get into a little bit deeper i would love to know you know how you guys are using ai and data to determine what type of products like how does that all work and how does a database work and what kind of output is that putting out for you guys yeah absolutely so um as i mentioned earlier that amy had built this database to help to find her own uh, ingredients and skincare that would have worked for her atopic dermatitis, mm-hmm. um, where she gathered scientific studies, where she gathered, you know, clinical trial results, as well as consumer testimonials and reviews. So as we found that, um, and then she ran machine learning algorithms to understand how different individual ingredients affect different people's skin based on environmental factors, who they are, their ethnicity, their um, specific concerns that they're, you know, trying to resolve, whether it's acne or anti-aging, etc. So as we started proving, we continue to build upon this database. So then now it is the largest database in beauty, wow. encompassing more than 4,000 scientific papers nice. um, from all kinds of, you know, peer-reviewed journals and more than 20 million consumer reviews and testimonials. So basically anything that we can find that is relevant that doesn't read like, you know, a fake review, right. we've incorporated. And Amy has, you know, analyzed, clean, clean the data, analyzed it, um, ran, you know, sophisticated AI algorithms through it to extract this kind of information. Right. Mm-hmm. From that, we then, um, you know, Brian, you talked about when you have this, a great idea, you know, you start attracting good people. In mm-hmm. fact, um, after we got some initial press for our idea, I think we were on TechCrunch, 
the head of dermatology at Stanford University reached out to us and said, you know, I believe that this is going to be the future of dermatology. I want to partner with you. Yeah. When I first saw that note, I was like, this is a spam message. Like, who, is, <laughs> who is like pranking me <laughs> as if they were the head of dermatology at Stanford? And then it turned out it was a real, you know, he was, it was a real, you know, Dr. Homig who wanted to partner with us. So we then started working with him to actually formulate the, um, the skincare products based on the insights from the database. So we, you know, we, we ask the database some questions, we confirm with Dr. Holman, we add other ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And that process went on for many months. And that's how we came up with the proven skincare, first of all, the dermatological foundation, mm -hmm. as well as the skincare products that we, um, that we now have. And in fact, the technology that we have, the Skin Genome Project, had won MIT's AI Technology of the Year Award. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Which, you know, we beat out 400 other AI companies to win the award. You know, not consumer companies, but actually AI companies that are also using AI to solve hard problems. So I think we felt vindicated <laughs> um, that of people in the beginning who didn't believe that we could infuse real technology right. uh, and AI into this because, you know, we not only can create a um, tremendous, you know, um, technology stack, but also use that to create great skincare products as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is amazing. That's super important. I feel like a lot of skincare products are just like a very tunnel vision, you know, I, none of them really think about incorporating data into it. Yeah. So yeah. You want to dive changer. into your charting, charting experience yeah. too, how it was <laughs> like, what's the application like, and you know, we're yeah. super proud of you, you know, we yeah. watched that clip a couple of times for this podcast <laughs> and just want to hear more about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so early on in our journey, um, one of the producers at Shark Tank reached out and was like, you know, we don't usually feature skincare companies, but yours seem really special, really differentiated. I, you know, want to see if you want to be on the show. At that time, it was very early on. We were still developing products with, um, with a dermatologist. We were like, this is not the right timing because I, I've seen the show. I know what they care about. They care about numbers. Mm -hmm. They care about sales. They care about, you know, product being in stores, whatever it is. And, um, so I told the producer, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch later. But then later on, like a year later, when we had a successful beta with real numbers, um, that producer left the show. And I was like, oh, crap. You know, so um, but then I found out that they Shark Tank has open casting calls all around the country. Mm -hmm. So it was like if one producer was interested, maybe others will be, too. So I just went through an open casting call to just earn our way in. And, you know, yeah, each step of the way, you know, um, impress them with our story with uh, where our company is and um, yeah, made it through each step of the way, you know, the first um, open casting call, that person was interested and then the next person was interested and they tried the product, they liked it and the next person was interested. And then you had to fill out a um, stack load of papers. It was so much papers to fill out because it's, you know, also it's investing, it's also TV, you know, all this stuff. So it was like a full-time job for a couple of weeks to get through all of these, um, all of this uh, paperwork. Uh, and then we finally had a film date and that was super exciting. You know, I was very nervous several months before that because, um, you know, with these things, it feels like it'll be the, you know, life or death of your company if, if it goes well, which is really not a good mindset to have because, right. you know, um, there are always more opportunities. There are always other ways to, you know, to, to, to make companies work. 
but nevertheless, that's how I felt. So I was very nervous preparing for my pitch. Um, and then the filming, um, the filming was very interesting. I didn't get a deal because the deal itself wasn't, wasn't the goal that, you know, I went on to have. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, you know, most of the people that filmed with me, many of them got deals. So I did feel a little bit like, oh, you know, I wish somebody on there uh, offered us something. But still, it's, it's okay. You know, um, just to be on the show is already great. Right. And then after you film, so for me, we filmed in like August of 2019. Mm -hmm. And we, they don't tell you whether you're going to be on the show or not because they film many more segments than they actually show. Mm -hmm. So if they don't show it, and I didn't get a deal, then all of that work would have been for nothing, you know, flying to Portland to do a open casting call and then doing all the paperwork and all the pitching, you know, one after another. Um, and then in April, a couple of weeks before they wanted to air, they emailed me and were like, you are going to air you like in two weeks. And we we're like, Oh my gosh. And my <laughs> entire team was so excited because they all knew how much work we had put in, you know, as a company, right. like in designing the billboards and the set and all this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, to the point where my team had stopped asking me like when we're going to air because they don't want to, you know, <laughs> made me sad yeah. because we had put in all this work and it was, there was nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. But then when we got that, it was just such a huge relief. You know, it was also right after the initial sort of, um, situation of COVID where we, mm -hmm. you know, had some bad effects in the beginning for COVID. Um, and we really needed a little pick me up. So that was just a great, um, uh, pick me up situation. Oh, here's my, here's my <laughs> daughter. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, it aired and really brought us great uh, traffic and um, notoriety. Oh, oh, is she naked? Okay. <laughs> hey, Amber. Okay, you're, oh, you're sweeping? Okay. Um, and then, <laughs> okay. um, and then um, yeah, right after the Shark Tank aired, um, our segment, which we filmed for the Today Show, Mm -hmm. aired shortly thereafter so we ended up having a tremendous may because of all this great traffic that was coming in and just additional credibility of you know having been been on these national shows right. so it turned out that that hard work was worth it um you know believing in ourselves was, was worth it um and we we are really grateful for having had these opportunities yeah. uh, and as you mentioned brian you know i'm also grateful for not having been afraid to you know, put our, myself out there to put our company out there. Mm. Um, in fact, when, you know, Shark King first aired, I don't watch it the first day because it was so, it's weird, yeah. uh, you know, to watch yourself on national TV. You don't know how silly they, they could edit you to make you look. And they certainly right. make a lot of people look very ridiculous. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, there was definitely that fear, but it's absolutely worth it to get over it and to just, you know, mm. go for it. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really fun experience. I mean, I can kind of talk from my own personal experience, too. Well, I applied for this reality investment show. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, casting, producing. It's really nervous, like nerve-wracking, you know. And we still, to this day, like, don't know, like, if we're going to get called yet. But we'll find out, like, a year from now to see if they're going to call us. But you're right. It, it is pretty nerve-wracking because as you're talking to producers, they're asking the same questions. They're doing like sound check. They're doing mic check. They're testing out your your camera your camera abilities per se. It's like you have to say some some words, talk about your description, and 
set in like a lot of footage so they can cut it to send to their producer. It's it's an interesting thing, you know, you know, so I do commend you a lot for doing it. It's very nerve wracking. It's not as as easy as you think it is. It's a lot of preparation involved. So I do definitely understand a lot yeah. on that side. Yeah, and it's very true that you say this is like a make or break kind of thing. I feel like a lot of people who go on Shark Tank have that same mentality. But it's really important that, you know, although you guys didn't get a deal, I love that you guys have that mentality that, you know, this is a great opportunity and it brought a lot of awareness and credibility to proven skincare. So that's really great. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, we were super excited to like continue. Like we want to definitely see more of your success. So how can our listeners reach out to you and find out more about you, me? And you can find out more about us at provenskincare.com. That's P-R-O-V-E-N skincare.com. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Ming. We really appreciate everything, you know, with your insight and your experiences. I think it was really refreshing to hear. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you guys so much. It was so fun to just get to chat with you. I would love to come back for an encore in a few months. <laughs> we'll amazing. We'll love, you have, we'll love to have you back. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys. Have a great rest of your day. All right, you, you too. too. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.